0: I thought I'd tell you just a little bit about myself, and I, you know, I don't know many of you, I know some of you, that I've had the privilege of meeting at camp, but when I was four, almost five years old, my mom took a Bible and told me that if I died without Jesus Christ, I'd go to straight to a devil's hell. By the way, nobody in his right mind wants to go to hell, nobody. I saw a book title in Barnes Noble here recently that said, I hope they serve beer in hell. And I thought, you can't even get the tip of your finger dipped in water in hell, much less beer. What a foolish, foolish thing to say and think. By the way, I don't give you a plug nickel for a preacher that says, listen, if you got saved so you wouldn't go to hell, you're not saved. Jesus preached way more on hell than he ever did heaven. Mark chapter 9, Luke chapter 16, Revelation 20 make it very clear that hell is a literal place of darkness and decay and burning and falling forever. It's not the economy, it's not an allegory for this current political climate, it's not the moral depravity, it's a real place that God never designed for one human being to go there. Matthew 25 says it was prepared for the devil and his angels. And when a man decides to pay for his own sin rather than accepting Christ's blood payment, that's where he must go forever. And I didn't want to go there, and so my mom took a Bible and showed me, and my parents said that I I asked the Lord to save me that night, and now here's the thing, you're not saved based on what you remember. You're saved based on belief in the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If I believed that very moment when I get to heaven, I'm going to find out that I indeed was saved when I was four, and God's going to say to me, Hey, Daniel, you were stupid for doubting those years. As soon as you believed, I saved you. I just couldn't remember it for myself. I didn't know if what I had was a painted memory or a legitimate memory of accepting the Lord. My parents would have never lied to me on purpose and would never have led me astray spiritually on purpose. I even felt like I had the witness of the Holy Spirit growing up, His witness bearing witness with me, a burden for souls wanting to serve the Lord and do what was right. But when I was 19 years of age, I knelt in a BP gas station, and I told the Lord that I wasn't sure I was saved. And I said, Lord, I don't even know if I need to do this. I don't know, but if I'm not saved, will you please save me? And so August of 1995 is the date that I claim for my salvation. God knows exactly but I do claim Romans eight seventeen is my verse of assurance that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Bible tells us in 1 John, hereby we know that we know him by the Spirit that he gives to us. And as far as my calling into ministry is concerned, I don't have a pie-in-the-sky story. I don't have one of those stories where I fought it for years and years and I hated being up in front of people and stammered and stepped over the words and God then called me. All I knew was uh, I preached my first message when I was ten, and then I considered going into a, a secular school for a while, then transferring to a Christian college and maybe going into law. I considered that for about a hot minute, uh, but when I was a teenager, I realized that God had given me the gift to preach and teach his word. They brought in the Word of Life program to our church there at Emanuel Baptist and Clifton Forge, and I got involved in what was called the Teens Involved program as a junior and senior in high school and would sing and preach competitively and things of that nature, and i realized that God had given me that calling. And so my calling's very simple. God gave me the gift to do it, and then he's opened the doors for me to use it. That's my simple calling right there. And I went to Ambassador Baptist College. After a year of community college, I went there and got my undergrad and my graduate, and then God has opened doors of ministry to me. And I tell you, I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing. You know, your pastor, being a pastor is not an easy job. Amen? And uh, I had the privilege of being a senior pastor for six years, and I think that one of the reasons the Lord allowed me to do that is now doing what I do, I I can understand and relate to a pastoral perspective. And as an evangelist, I want to tell you my philosophy of ministry. Somebody said that an evangelist is somebody that blows in, blows up, and blows out. I don't agree with that. I believe that an evangelist is here to be an encouragement to the local church. That starts with being an encouragement to your pastor. I don't know if I'll encourage him this week, but I'll make him laugh. I can guarantee you that. I'll do something. He's an encouragement to me, his testimony, his faithful preaching, teaching the Word of God. He, along with other men that I get to rub shoulders with at camp, at Pleasure Island Bible Camp, are are some of my heroes in the faith because they've stuck by the stuff for so many decades and are doing what God wants them to do. I'm here to be a help, not a hindrance. I am simply an extension of the truth that your pastor is already preaching. I might have a little bit different presentation, a little bit different style, definitely a little bit bigger than Brother Errol, all right? But the truth is still the same. And so that's why we're here this week, amen? Just want to let you know where I stand. I do believe that revival can come to the church. If not, why are we here? You know, now listen, some people say, well, we had a great revival service. We saw 20 people say, don't misunderstand me, we want to see people saved this week. As a matter of fact, I plan on hitting the gospel Tuesday night really, really hard. And so if you know of folks in your family or community or the workplace that don't know Jesus as Savior, invite them out every night because we'll give the gospel every night. But specifically Tuesday, I want to gear for that if that's okay. So bring them out. But you know what? We don't gauge the success of a meeting by how many people get saved. Sometimes God allows us to see fruit and sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes we have to wait to the other side of eternity to see exactly what it is that God has done. But sometimes he allows us to see that fruit that remains even on this side. That's what we're praying for this week. But revival is when God's people get revived. When God's people, once again, love the Lord above everybody and everything else. And when that happens, a wonderful byproduct of that is successful evangelism where people get saved. Amen? So are we all on the same page with that? Amen, we appreciate, appreciate that. We're in 2 Corinthians 1. Hope you have time to find it. Want to be an encouragement to you tonight. I want you to leave here with a little bit more spring in your step. I'd like you to leave here with a little bit more spiritual gas in your tank. Because I can't afford to put regular gas in your tank. And neither can you, right? Although I noticed there, I got gas at a speedway there right near the comfort suites uh, near Kings Island. And and it was significantly cheaper than the gas that I bought back home, so I don't know. We might have to take some of your gas stations back to Virginia with me. I don't know. But look at verse number 11 of 2 Corinthians 2, one verse here, and then we're going to go to an Old Testament story that illustrates some of the truth of this verse. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth and also to you and I in application says this, Let Satan should get an advantage over us. For we are not ignorant of his devices. Here in 2 Corinthians 2, Paul, like an old ball coach, like a football coach, says, listen, devil, you might be older, you might be stronger, you might be more experienced, but I'm here to tell you, we've watched the game film on you. We've watched the tape on you, and we know what you're all about. The word devices here in the Greek language means uh, the idea of how he is his persuasive. It means the idea of how he perceives things, how he thinks, how he operates. And Paul says toys may change, technology may change, but the devil's devices do not. He operates under the same way that he has for 6,000 plus years. You know what the devil wants to do tonight, folks? Number one, the devil wants to blind your eyes to the truth of the gospel. There's two kinds of people in this world today, not Browns and Bengals fans, and I'm sorry I saw the score of that Bengals game. didn't look too good again today. I don't know what's going on with him. Not two kinds of people, Democrats and Republicans. Two kinds of people in the world, those that are blind and those that can see. By the way, if you're saved, when's the last time you thank God for your spiritual eyesight? Aren't you glad that you have discernment and through the Holy Spirit of God, who's the greatest Bible teacher in the world, you can determine from that which is false, from that which is factual in the Word of God? Aren't you glad that although the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned their foolishness unto Him, aren't you glad it's not that way to you and that God has allowed the scales to fall from your eyes and you're no longer blind? Thank God for spiritual eyesight. There's a lot of people in this world that are blind. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world, little g, God of this world, that's the devil, that's Satan, has blinded them lest the glorious light of the gospel should come in. If you're here tonight, yes, even on a Sunday night of a revival meeting, we thank you for being here. You could have made other choices, but you chose to be here. Thank you for that. Even on a Sunday night, you could be here, and you might be spiritually blind. You might have 20-20 vision physically, but you are blind as can be, blind as a bat spiritually. For now, i want to tell you, the devil has you right where he wants you. Don't be blind to the gospel. Open your eyes. Realize that Jesus died and was buried and rose again for your sin. Repent, which means to have a change of mind about that sin. Turn from that sin and trust Christ by faith. And the moment you do, you're saved forever. Jesus died once for all, Hebrews 10 tells us. Therefore, we get saved once for all, and we can never lose that. Aren't you glad for that? It's Jesus' job to save you. It's also His job to keep you. According to First Peter chapter one, we're kept by His power, and I'm glad for that. The devil wants to blind your eyes to the gospel. Number two, the devil wants to bash your testimony for Jesus Christ. First Peter five eight says this: "Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, seeking whom he seeketh whom he may devour." Now the Bible doesn't say he's a lion. He's a fallen angel. He's a spirit but just look with the ferocity of a lion that tears into its prey, the devil is the same way with you and I. And if you're saved, he can't touch your soul, but he wants to do anything that he can to destroy your effectiveness for Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 9.27, the Apostle Paul said, I bring my body under subjection lest that when I preach to others, I myself should become a castaway or disapprove. The devil wants you on the shelf. The devil wants you on the bench. He doesn't want you serving God. And number three, he wants to block in the eye of the cause of Christ. Listen, friend, when the devil hates you, don't take it personally. The reason the devil hates you is because he hates Jesus Christ. And you are made in the image of the one being whom he will never be, and that's God. You see, the devil in heaven was second fiddle rather than first chair, and he couldn't handle that. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to ascend his throne above the Most High, according to Isaiah 14. He thought these things in his heart, along with a third of the hosts of the angels of heaven, and God, who has no rival, has no equal and will tolerate no rival, kicked him out along with all those who believed the same way. And the devil is jealous of that relationship. The devil is, is angry that he's not God and will be second fiddle forever. And so the devil's devices, we're on to them. Now I want you to listen to this. devil uses many different devices in the local church. Do you know that fornication is a device the devil uses in the local church. Immorality, would you agree? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says this, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That means this, any sexual activity outside of marriage is sin. Hebrews 13 says, Marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Inside of marriage, it's right, it's beautiful, God created it. Outside, it's corrupt and perverted. And by the way, we preach on homosexuality and and we preach against transgenderism and and we get amens for these things and we should. God calls homosexuality an abomination. Preacher, I used to preach that all sins were the same and then I realized I was wrong. There are some sins that God calls outright abominable and homosexuality is one of them. But you know what? Shacking up is sin too. It's wrong to live together before you get married. You say, well, I love him. It doesn't matter. Well, we're engaged, it doesn't matter. Inside a marriage, it's right. Outside, It's wrong. In some churches, immorality is a device that needs to be dealt with, but probably not in this church. You know, in some church, some churches, false doctrine is an issue. The Bible says in Peter that there are, are wolves in sheep's clothing that come in uh, denying the one that bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. There are some churches where men get behind podiums and lecterns and purposefully and premeditatedly preach that which is wrong. Thank God you have a pastor who preaches the word of God. Amen? Amen. And by the way, they're not a dime a dozen. Thank the Lord for him, for his wife and his family. You ought to seek every opportunity you get to honor him and take care of him and exalt him and his family. He'll never ask for it, but when you do that, he'll give what you give him and put it right back in the ministry. Amen? You ought to do that. He didn't tell me to say that, but if he wants to pay me later, he can, all right? (laughs) Some churches, false doctrine's an issue, but probably not in this church. You know, in some churches, they fight and fret and fuss and fume over everything. Man, they might even have a church split on whether you put the toilet paper on the top of the roll or the bottom. By the way, if you put it on the bottom, you're a savage. You need to get right with the Lord. Amen? It goes on the top. Amen? Amen? Oh, my soul. Paul said that there'd be no schism in the body in 1 Corinthians 12. There'd be no division. God expected us to be unified, not compromising over doctrine, not just uh, sugarcoating the gospel, but we ought to be unified as we work together to reach others for Jesus. That's a problem in some churches, a device the devil uses, but probably not here. But I can tell you one thing, folks, there's a device that the devil uses that affects everybody in this room starting with this preacher. And it's simple, old-fashioned discouragement. Evangelist Ron Comfort, who started Ambassador Baptist College, the school that I went to, he said this. He says, a doubting Christian is a defeated Christian, and I agree with him, but I'd like to amend that and say this. A discouraged Christian can be a defeated Christian. Discouragement is a reality of life. It's going to happen at some point. You say, Brother Bear, are are you a cynicist? No. Are you a fatalist? No. But I know that in this fallen world, in this human flesh that we're made of, this stuff that we're made of, discouragement is a reality. And you're either in it right now or you've came out of it or you're going to go back to it again. It's just a part of life. But here's the wonderful truth. We don't have to live there. We don't have to stay there We're not ignorant of the devil's devices. And folks, this evening, we can defeat discouragement. I want to talk to you for a few moments along those lines. Father, help us tonight to see what's pleasing to you. Encourage your people as only you can. Lord, I can't persuade them. I can't twist their arms. I can't manipulate them. But the Holy Spirit of God can bring about change through the Word of God. And we ask for that tonight. Lord, if there's somebody here tonight that isn't saved, they've heard the gospel, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, please save their souls. For that believer not living for you, Lord, the most encouraging thing that they can do is repent of that rebellion, of that sin, confess it, forsake it, and get right with you. For that lost person, the most encouraging thing that he can do is receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And for that believer tonight who may be down or despondent or in despair, the most encouraging thing that he can do is to allow his heart to be ministered through the Word of God and be encouraged. Lord, as always, we claim that your Word doesn't return void. It prospers, and we know it works. And we ask you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, take your Bible and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're going to fly through this tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 30, I think this is a story that illustrates what we discussed in 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. This is a story about David. I never turned down an opportunity to preach about David told you this morning he's my favorite bible character you know we have preconceived notions about how our bible characters look i picture david as dark hair and a dark beard maybe as he became king but the bible says he was a ruddy youth which means it's very possible that he was a red-haired jew we'll see him one day when we get to heaven i'll get to meet him though because he's there a man for god's own heart a man who although not perfect a man who blew it spiritually many many times but yet he viewed the world through the same lens that god did He was sensitive towards sin, especially his own. And when God looked at him, he saw the flawed version of himself, yet still said, here's a man after my own heart. That's a wonderful testimony. I can't think of having a better testimony than that. Here in 1 Samuel 30, David is still on the run. He's not yet the united king of Israel, although God has given it to him. He still has a green-eyed monster in the form of a man named Saul that's chasing him. Now Saul is so eaten up with jealousy and rage that he's become a maniacal murderer. By the way, it's a wonderful study in Wasted Potential with King Saul, if you ever get a chance to do that. And the David even said, he said, there's but one step between me and death, looking over his shoulder, and now he's pulling double agent duty for the Philistines. He's pretending to be an agent of the Philistines while he's hiding out there, and the king of Philistia has given him a city called Ziklag, where he and his entourage can live as they do things for the Philistine army. And in chapter 30, verse 1, it says this, And it came to pass, when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag, and smitten Ziklag, and burned it with fire, and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire, and their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the wife of Nabal, the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. Now I want you to get this phrase. If you don't get anything else, get this little phrase tonight. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Number one, I want you to see David's situation. Number one, there was arson in his city. My wife and I bought a home in 2012, it's still the same home we live in, and when we moved in, we noticed that we had problems with our basement flooding. Someone had put indoor-outdoor carpet down in there, and every time the basement would flood, that thing would get stinking and wet, and it was demoralizing to have that basement flood. Man, a lot of getting those shop backs out and all that stuff is just, you just want to give it up. My dad and I put some corrugated pipe down from the house. We got the water running away from the house better, and so that helped it a whole lot. But it was a horrible, horrible feeling to think that your basement was being ruined by water. Now, that's nothing, friend. Imagine your house, your home's on fire. Now, you may not have much. You may not have many possessions, but your home is on fire. Everything you own is going up in smoke. I don't care how much you polish your halo, I don't care how spiritual you say you are. Buddy, if your house is on fire, it's going to discourage you. The Bible tells us in Psalms that he knows our frame, that we are but dust. Friend, I want to tell you what. We have no excuse in Scripture to ever fret, to ever worry, to ever do anything but trust God. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Romans tells us whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We don't have an excuse to worry and fret. But you know what? God understands it when we do. Hebrews says, We have not a priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ got sad. Christ understood laughter and humor. He understood hunger and pain and loss and thirst and weariness and tiredness. He went through a physical birth. He went through a physical death. He uh, he experienced it all except for sin. There was arson in David's city. But number two, there was an apprehension of his family. Friends, the Bible tells us that the Malachites, the bad guys... Who, if Saul had taken care of like he was supposed to, it wouldn't have been an issue anyway, chapters before. They come in and they steal their families. David and his men have been away, they come back, and the women, the children, they're gone. They don't know where they're at. They don't know what happened to them for sure. We've got mamas in this room, not just moms, but mamas. We've got grandmothers in this room, and you know how much you've panicked before. If you've ever been holding the hand of your little one and somehow even for a moment they got separated in a store in the mall somewhere, you panicked, you freaked because that's your child, the one that you love more than anything else in this world. David comes back and his wives are missing. By the way, David had two wives. I can hardly keep up with one. I don't know how he kept I better move on, all right? His children are missing. And I don't care if you're a patriarch of the faith or not. I don't care if your name's in the hall of faith and so many of you consider to be a a Christian superhero. That gets discouraging. For now, I'm going to tell you something tonight. The last thing that I want to do is trivialize what you're going through. Your pain is real. Maybe there's somebody here tonight and you've got an insurmountable financial need. See this brother after service, he'll help you. (laughs) Maybe you're here tonight and you received a pretty discouraging diagnosis which had a follow-up, even worse prognosis. Maybe you've got a family member that you've been praying for to be saved for decades and their heart seems as hard and adamant as it's always been. Maybe you got a family member and there's a bridge that's been burned and you don't know and see how that's ever going to be restored. Maybe there's a Christian in your family who hasn't darkened the doorsteps of a church in 20 years and you've been praying to your blue in the face to get a hold of them and bring them home. Friend, whatever you're going through, it's real. But I want to remind you that nobody ever went through what Jesus went through. John 19, 30, it is finished, and hallelujah for that. John 17, I've finished the work you've given me to do. I've glorified you. That's true. Oh, but what Jesus had to go through to get there. We will never fathom what Jesus truly went through through us. And by the way, I'm glad I don't have to fully understand it in order to receive it. Amen? It wasn't just the torture, which was the worst ever. It wasn't just that he was beaten beyond human recognition, if you believe the Messianic Psalms. It wasn't just that his visage was so marble than any man, you couldn't even recognize what they did to him. And that's before the cross. It's that he was separated from his Father. And for the first and only time in eternal history, there was not perfect fellowship between God the Father and God the Son. As Jesus, not just bore, as Pastor Earl told us rightfully, became sin for us. He became the thing that God the Father hated and couldn't look on. And Christ suffered hell for you and for me for six hours on that cross. That's the worst day ever. But we go through discouraging things. Excuse me, I dropped something. We've seen David's situation. Now, number two, I want you to see David's sorrow. The Bible says in verse number four, then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept until they had no more power to weep. Have you ever cried until the tears wouldn't come anymore? Who gave you your tear ducts? Who gave you the ability to emote there's a little verse in my Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35, that if you have five verses memorized, I guarantee you that's one of them, that says, Jesus wept. That's profound, friends. That speaks volumes about our Savior, doesn't it? Sometimes the tears come. The psalmist said, put thou my tears in thy bottle. 1 Peter 5.7 Casting all your care on him for he careth for you. The psalmist says this righteous man cried, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all of his troubles. Sometimes we cry. Number one, this is a good old fashioned southern word tonight, alright? Number one, there was bawling. Look in your Bible. It says, and the David and the people that were with him lifted their voice and wept. They didn't just have a, a tear or two running down their cheeks. The word means to bemoan. It means to wail. There was wailing and crying. And ah, crying out to the Lord. Our families are gone. Everything's on fire. What is happening? There was bawling. But number two, there was a binding. The Bible says that David was distressed. He was bound. Kind of like that rock in a hard place again. By the way, friends, just because the word pastor is in front of somebody's name or evangelist or missionary doesn't mean that discouragement doesn't come. Elijah got to the point where he said, Lord, just kill me. Jonah wanted to die when he saw God spare the Ninevites. The Bible says Elijah, who was one of the boldest And most brazen preachers ever. He'd get kicked out of a lot of independent Baptist churches today. The Bible says he was a man subject to like passions as we are. There was bawling, there was binding, but number three, there was blame shifting. It says, and David was greatly distressed for the people spake of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters, But David encouraged himself, the Lord is God. You know, sometimes when we're grieving, we say and do things we shouldn't. Sometimes when we're grieving and we're hurt and discouraged, we blame others for things. Man, these men would have given their lives for David 15 minutes ago. They were his bodyguard. They were his entourage. This is the king of Israel, the chosen one. And now they're grabbing rocks to bash his skull in because something went wrong. Friend, I want to tell you something tonight. I hope this will be a help to you. There are people in here that are older than me and wiser than me, and I don't pretend to have all the answers, but I know this is true because it's in the Bible. Whatever you're going through, please don't blame God. Please don't blame God. I don't know all the reasons why God does what he does, and neither do you. And by the way, he's not obligated to tell us. I'll give you a $10,000 check, which I cannot cash, If you find one place in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation where it says that God is obligated to explain himself to us. Sometimes we find out, but sometimes we don't. We sing the song, we'll understand it better by and by. And I know this, I don't know what I'm going to know when we get to heaven, but I'll know everything I'm supposed to know. I'll have a glorified mind, and God will explain what we're supposed to explain. And maybe some of it just won't even matter, amen? The Bible says put away bitterness. Hebrews says don't allow a root of bitterness to spring up because many there be have been defiled by it. Don't blame God, friend, but I want to tell you what. I always know why he doesn't do what he does. He's never unjust. He's never partial. He never makes a mistake. Some people get mad at God because of a hurt or pain, And they walk out on him and God's people and never look back and they miss out on the blessings of the Christian life for the rest of their lives. Don't do that. Job, I would contend tonight, went through the second worst day in human history. I have a message I preach called Job's Really Bad Day. He lost his fortune, he lost his workforce, and he lost his family on the same day. Yet the Bible says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. We've seen David's situation. We've seen his sorrow. Now, number three, I want you to get this. Here's the crux of the message. I want you to see his strengthening. Look at the end of verse number six. It says, and David, but David, excuse me, encouraged himself in the Lord his God. The word encouraged means to strengthen. It means to cure. And friend, the Bible says, number one, we see David's participation. It says that he encouraged himself. Now listen to me. I'm not talking about willpower tonight. I'm not talking about self-esteem. I'm not talking about having a sense of personal confidence. I'm talking about if you wait for somebody else to encourage you, it may never come. It may never come. The Bible says that David strengthened, cured himself. That's the participation. Friend, the only person that you can know for sure that can get involved in your encouragement is you. The attaboys may never come. The note of encouragement may never come. The expression of appreciation may never come this side of eternity. You've got to get involved in your own encouragement. So if you're here tonight and you're down in the dumps spiritually there's something on your mind and heart that it starts with your involvement. Number one, David's participation, but number two, David's power. It says, he encouraged himself, listen to this carefully, in the Lord his God. That preposition in is important. There is no encouragement outside of Jesus. Friend, Life isn't worth living without Christ. Houses, jobs, relationships, positions of power and influence and prestige, none of it means anything outside of Him. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can never experience joy. Psalm 1611, our camp verse says this, Thou wilt show him the the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Most of this world lives from happiness fix to happiness fix. Emotional high to emotional high. And by the way, we as believers, if we're not careful, we're addicted to it too. We look for the next big thing, don't we? But you know, we can have joy even when things are bad. Even when our houses are on fire and our families have been kidnapped we can still be encouraged. But you've got to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And by the way, once you say yes to Him, He says yes to you, and you are in. John 6 says, He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. If you call upon Jesus in belief in your heart, He cannot say no to you. Amen. Aren't you glad for that? If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ as Savior, You need to accept Him. Now, folk, if you go out here misunderstanding me, I don't want you to do that. There are some people that have depression issues that require medication. That's true for some people. But you know, maybe for some of us, the reason why we're down is a spiritual issue. Maybe we've gotten our eyes off the Lord. Maybe we need to receive Christ as our Savior. Maybe as a believer, we're running from Him and... Allowing a besetting sin to take control in our lives that we refuse to confess and forsake? Maybe the first stop in strengthening ourselves is making sure that we're right with the Lord. Allow Him in that relationship, meditating on Him. This book of the law, blessed is the man that depart neither the counsel of the ungodly, nor setteth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the way we see the scornful, but in his delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate. Day and night. Blessed is that man. When we concentrate on the Lord, when we love what He loves and hate what He hates, when we think about Him, when our mind is on the Lord, when our mind is on serving Him and others, when our mind is on doing what He's called us to do and who we are in Him, when we're reminded of all the promises that He keeps and how He never breaks one, Titus 1-2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. I am the Lord. I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. When we think about who God is and the promises that he keeps, we can be encouraged, strengthened in the Lord, our God. Listen, friend, if you know Jesus, he's your God, he's your Savior. 2 Corinthians 1, which is a wonderful passage to use for funeral times, but at all times, he's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He'll encourage you. Oh, Brother Barry, I don't know. 2 Peter 1 says this. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have that encouragement at your disposal if you'll use it. Number one, we've seen David's situation. Two, we've seen David's sorrow. Three, we've seen David's strengthening. Now in closing, I want you to see David's service. Look at verse number seven. And David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. And David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop the ones that have stolen our families and burned our homes? Shall we go after them? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, Pursue, for thou shalt surely overtake them, and without fail recover all. Number one, David prayed. He wiped the tears from his eyes. He got off his his knees. He washed his face, if you will. And he sought the Lord's help. Friend, why is it when we're down... Prayer is a last resort rather than our first response. Do you know, don't ever say this to somebody because it's bad theology. Don't ever say, well, brother, all you can do is pray about it. That's bad theology. That casts doubt on the effectiveness of prayer. Listen, my words have no magical formula, but the Bible tells me that we have this confidence in 1 John that if we ask anything according to his will that he hears us. And if he hears us, we also have the petitions that we desire of him. The Bible says that we have not because we ask not. Ask and ye shall receive. Knock and ye shall be opened unto you. Seek and ye shall find. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. In other words, when we need wisdom, when we ask God, he's not irritated that you ask. Friend, we need to pray. If you're down and out about something tonight, why don't you seek God about it? Sometimes we turn to everybody and everything else except for him. David prayed. But then number two, David pursued. God said, go. Why is that important? We're not going to read the rest of the story, but I'll tell you what happens. David gets back in the saddle. David starts doing what he does best, and that's mopping the floor with bad guys. He quits wallowing in despair and gets back to doing what God's called him to do. Maybe for some of us, we just got to get back in the game. Maybe you still come and sit in a pew, but when's the last time that you really got involved here at Sugar Valley? Is there a ministry, and the Lord is... Knock on your heart's door about that. Maybe you need to start putting others in Christ once again ahead of your own problems. Philippians 2 says, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man to their own things, but the things of others. Let this mind, this mindset, this attitude, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Christ laid aside everything for the will of the Father and for his love for us. Somebody once said the joy is Jesus, others, and you. In that order. But we got it backwards, don't we? So many times we live by yaj, that's not even a word, you, others, Jesus. David said, Lord, what do you want to do? And God said, pursue. And David said, I'm fine. Rest of the story, there he goes and finds the Amalekites dancing it up, man having a big party. Whoa, we mopped the floor with them. You see that house on fire? <laughs> see how their wives and children screamed as we took them kidnapping? And David mopped the floor with them all day long. And God gave him back everything that he lost. Every wife was returned, every child, and even the spoil. But David encouraged himself. And the Lord is God what are you going through tonight? Maybe here at Sugar Valley the issue of revival is not based on immorality or very open, socially big sins, fighting and fussing. Toilet paper goes on the top, Don't we'll forget. False doctrine, you guys got to stick about the stuff. Maybe we need a revival and encouragement. Maybe the world needs to quit seeing us sucking on persimmons all the time and living like we have the joy of the Lord in our heart. David encouraged himself. How do you defeat it? You've got to get involved and trust in the power of the Lord. Amen? Pray with me. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed tonight. And you've listened so well. Thank you for that. makes the job of the preacher so much more enjoyable. When folks listen, you're right with me. You're to be commended for that. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I want to ask you a couple questions tonight as our dear penis begins to play. appreciate her doing that. I'm just going to ask you simply and straightforwardly, do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Friend, there is no encouragement outside of Jesus. I want there to be somebody here tonight and say, Brother Barry, I'm not sure that I'm saved. I don't know that Jesus is my Savior and that God's my Heavenly Father, but I'll tell you what, I'm concerned about it. And I'm burdened about it to the point of where I want you to pray for me because I'm not sure. Friend, if you're here tonight and even on a Sunday night crowd and you're not sure that you're saved, would you raise your hand so we could pray for you? Anyone like that at all? Here's my next question addressing Christians. been saved, Brother Barry, I have been discouraged. I've had my eyes on myself and my own problems. And God has convicted me tonight that I don't have to live there. I don't have to stay there. It can be defeated by encouraging myself in the Lord my God. God spoke to my heart tonight. I am in need of a revival of encouragement. God convicted me tonight. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Anyone like that? Amen. All over the place. Friend, there's an altar here open. Nothing magical about an altar, but there is an accountability to it. There is a reality to it when we come and pray and leave our burdens to the Lord. This altar is open for you. I wonder if there would be a believer here tonight and say, Brother Bear, there's a sin issue in my life that I need to confess and forsake. As a believer, we don't get saved again and again. As believers, we confess. We agree with God about our sin. We say the same thing about it that he says. And we forsake it. We have a heart attitude that we don't want to do it anymore. And when we do that, even if we do it over and over, Jesus forgives us. The relationship never changes, but the fellowship's restored. Is there a believer here tonight that said, Brother Barry, I have been discouraged because I've been allowing sin to rule in my heart, and God spoke to my heart about that, and I need to do business with him tonight. If that's you, would you? Yes, sir. Amen. Thank you for that. Hey, I don't know what it is. I don't need to know. I don't know what to know. Whatever it is, confess it to God. Bitterness, anger, lust, laziness, whatever it may be, confess it to God. He'll forgive it. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin, the Bible says. Jesus saved you even though he knew what you would do years later. Confess it to him and he'll restore it and revival can come. Here's my last question. Would there be a believer here tonight that said, Brother Barry, I am legitimately leaving the house of God tonight spiritually encouraged. And I want that encouragement to translate in the way that I serve him for the rest of my life. If that's you, would you raise your hand? Amen. Praise the Lord for you. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you so much that it's worked. Be with Pastor Earl as he comes and leads the invitation as you direct him, in Jesus' name.